Hello and welcome to another edition of Prospects for Prospects. I'm your host, David Russell, along with my co-host, David Coleman. What's up, David? How's it going, Russell? And you might want to do something with your audio because it's coming through like really strange on my end. It's like high, low, high, low, high, low. High, low. Yeah, I have a. Oh, that, that's better. That's better. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we got an awesome uh, uh, show coming up today on on the resurrection. So, the debate topic tonight, fellows and ladies, are is Jesus? Did Jesus rise? And we have two special guests, Nick Peters and Jim Majors. Uh, say hi, guys. Hi guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on. Um, so yeah, what we like to do first is uh, just kind of like introduce each of you. We'll start with uh, the affirmative, uh, Nick, who affirms the virgin birth. So Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, um, your ministry and so forth? Yeah, and, well, and my... why you affirm the virgin birth. Which I do affirm. Which I, yeah. I, can we just make one thing clear? That's not what the, the debate's about. Just in case anybody's watching yeah. is confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole page on my website. Just type in I affirm the virgin birth and look for a blog post all about that. And you'll find the whole story. I'm not going to go into it here right now. But let's just say it's something I've been doing for several years. I literally have a bumper sticker on my car and a T-shirt that says that. And but, yet I only use one, one in one verse. I, I refute that just Isaiah seven thirteen or 14. We're going to get into a pre-debate here, ladies and gentlemen. I've been doing apologetics for about 20 years or so. My ministry is called Deeper Waters. You can find me at deeperwatersapologetics.com. And I've got a Patreon set there if you want to support me. I hope someday to get back do, into doing my own podcast called The Deeper Waters Podcast and working on the Deeper Waters YouTube channel. And I'd also like to say something unusual about the ministry that I do, and it's directly relevant to this month. And it coincides very well if you are having Hugh Ross on later on this month in that I am actually on the autism spectrum. I have Asperger's. In August month, I'm planning on doing a series on my blog about what life is like being on the spectrum and being a Christian apologist there. And so that, that's just a unique thing that I bring to the ministry to remind people about what life is like on the spectrum and how to live. And currently right now, I live in Tennessee with my little kitty Shiro, who hopefully won't be whining too much during this debate since it's almost close to his uh, favorite time of the evening where he eats. And I'd like to thank you all for having me on, including the uh, open fiesta Calvinistic presuppositionist who doesn't affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm David Palman. Uh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, let, let's kick it over to Jim. Hey, hey, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, this is the first time you've been on our show and uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what's going on in your life and what you do. Uh, well, my name is Jim Majors. Um, wait, am I muted? No, you're good. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Jim Majors. Uh, I am an atheist. Uh, however, I was a Christian for uh, the majority of my life, for the better part of 30 years. Uh, I have a Master of Theology and New Testament Studies, and I'm currently a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible or Old Testament Studies. 
Uh, and with my focus is on uh, Daniel Lake literature. My dissertation that I'm uh, currently uh, doing revisions on, uh, it's it's ultimate, just pretty much finished, just uh, doing some final editing, final revisions, um, is over the, uh, the, the methodology behind the, uh, the selection of the uh, early chapters of the book of Daniel and the, uh, the later second century uh, uh, reason for editing and redacting those, uh, those books and, and writing the, uh, the last chapters. Yeah, that's interesting, man. That, that's really interesting. Well, well, we're glad to have both of you guys on. And uh, mm -hmm. well, as you guys know, this is Easter. So this is the time of year where the resurrection is is kind of uh, the main theme. And it should be the theme for Christians all year round. But <laughs> uh, we have a special uh, format tonight. We're going to go more the formal format. So we're going to take a 10 to 12 minute openings. And the reason we're not like too strict on that is because it's good to just give it a little bit of time to finish up your last closing thoughts and so forth. So 10 to 12 minute opening statements, then five to six minute rebuttals, 30 minute across examination, and then five minute closings. So we'll start the timer. We're going to go with Nick, who is the affirmative mm -hmm. and he will go first and then Jim will follow up. And then when we jump into the 30 minutes, guys, I'm going to let you guys you know, I'm going to appoint Nick to go first to do the opening question or uh, and then I'm going to let you guys take it from there. You guys can question each other and, you know, discuss it like that or or divide it up. It's your conversation. I want you guys to be the ones that are making this debate happen. We're not going to be over here throwing hammers at you and trying to, you know, over moderate. So, <laughs> so are, are you saying that for for 30, 30 minutes each, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, 30, so is no, that are we? Is was just thirty minutes in which one person is in charge of the conversation ultimately? No, no. You guys can bounce back and forth and just have a discussion for the thirty minutes, or you can. Okay, so it. it's not going to be an hour of cross examinations. It's going to yeah, be half an hour. 30, yeah, it's going to be thirty. Oh, minutes. So okay. Is, what, is it is it more of a discussion or cross examination? Because cross examination is usually one person yeah. asks a question and it has to be ultimately or, or directly uh, addressed. Yeah, and this is the thing is like I was gonna let you guys decide that because it's your conversation. You guys are gonna know which way you want to take it. So yeah. I was gonna let you guys decide that because th this is where it kind of gets informal for us. Gotcha. For the most part, because nobody really kind of sticks to those fifteen uh, minutes. Yeah. One guy speaks, and then fifteen minutes, the other guy speaks. Yeah. They, they end up blending together uh, anyway. So. Nick, uh, <laughs> I think are I you? We go with the discussion route. That's easier to do. All right. Okay. Uh, I was gonna. I was gonna suggest we go fifteen, fifteen, uh, questioning each other, but allowing mm -hmm. allowing um, um, space for for open discussion. Because I mean that, that that's really all, okay. all I would. Uh, okay. Odds are so, we'll just wing it and see what happens when we get there. Yeah. If like if okay. one if one person is like asking all the questions or dominating the conversation, then I mean I'm sure that won't happen. But if something like that's happening, then we'll just jump in and change it up. Okay. I figured it'd be Palman who was dominating, but okay. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, well, Nick, we'll let you go first. I'll get the timer ready, mm -hmm. um, and you know, take it away. I'll start it when when you uh, say your first word. Your first word. <laughs> Jesus is quite likely the most revolutionary figure in history. Our calendar is based on him entirely, and the impact he's had on the world is immeasurable through art, philosophy, morality, literature, 
education, etc. The question we are debating tonight is of central utmost importance. It is a question that determines so much of reality. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, then Christian claims of him being Yahweh's agent of rule need to be taken extremely seriously. And I'd add there was a great answer to the problem of evil and suffering and hope for eternal life for everyone. If he didn't rise, then Christianity is the greatest delusion that has ever befallen mankind and has swept the globe entirely. So let's look at the evidence. Did Jesus arise? I'm not going to make a case right now for the existing of Jesus as a historical figure. I think that's accepted, but if I'm mistaken about that, I'll gladly say something about it. But if we're going to look at the case where did Jesus rise, we need to look at the most scholarly sources that we can. And these are people with PhDs in fields such as New Testament or classical history. I'll be looking at scholars from all different persuasions. I can find Christian, atheist, agnostic, Jewish, as long as they have a PhD in the field. The first piece of evidence I want to look at is the creed found in 1 Corinthians 15. And in this creed, Paul talks about how he passed on what he received according to the scriptures. And he lists many people who saw the risen Christ after he was crucified buried, and risen again. These include Peter and James, the Twelve, and more than 500 at a time, and then he adds himself to the list. Now, 1 Corinthians dates to around the 50s or so, maybe 55, 56, but this material in this creed dates even earlier. Most scholars date it to within the latest five years of the event. James Crossley, in a debate with Gary Habermas on the show Unbelievable and Crossley is an atheist, said that this is a gold mine in history. This is the kind of thing historians salivate over. And yet, the most essential claims we need are right there. Jesus was crucified. This is something that virtually no one doubts. When Gerd Ludemann wrote his book about what really happened to Jesus, one of the first things he says is that Jesus' death by crucifixion is certain, and the hypotheses that argue against that need not be discussed any further here. John Dominic Crossan says if there's anything in history that we can be sure of, it's that Jesus died by crucifixion. This was a hideously shameful event. It's not the kind of thing you would make up for a leader you were going around proclaiming was the Messiah of Israel. It's multiply attested in all of our sources, and it's attested to in non-Christian sources as well, such as Josephus and Tacitus and Lucian. Next thing is that Jesus was buried. The burial account of Jesus, according to Jody Magnus of the University of North Carolina Chapel here, is entirely consistent with archaeological findings. 
in the time of Jesus in Palestine, the Roman Empire did allow the Jews to observe their religious rituals to a certain extent. They didn't have to sacrifice to the emperor. For example, they could sacrifice for the emperor, and <clears throat> they were willing to not have the insignias of a temper being there when Pilate tried to bring them into the city. This would include barrier, because for the Jews, even if someone was thought to be an outsider in some sense, barrier was done for the purity of the land. After all, you don't want to bury a body in a grave that would be easily dug up by a dog or have something picked up easily by a bird and carried to a temple and desecrate the whole area. This was done for the purity of the land. Again, the Gospels agree Jesus was buried, and Paul agrees that Jesus was buried. This is entirely consistent with what we find in Jewish literature about burial practices in Palestine. And it's not contested by anyone in church history for the first few centuries at least. The next point is that there was an empty tomb left behind. And Geja Vermech even says that when the women arrived at the tomb on that Sunday morning, much to their dismay, what they found was an empty tomb. If a tomb had not been empty, the Jesus movement would have never gotten started. It would have been very easy to just point anyone to where the body was, and boom, game over. It's done. So based on these, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was definitely crucified, died, buried. Well, what about risen again? After all, an empty tomb alone isn't enough. For that, we have the appearances. Now, these can often be said to be hallucinations. But the problem with hallucinations is usually, unless someone has some condition, such as, say, oh, dementia or a strong schizophrenia, when they have a hallucination, shortly afterwards, they realize it was a hallucination and they don't go making major life choices. And even the case of schizophrenics, we can think of someone like John Nash, who at the end of A Beautiful Mind is asked, are they still there? Talking about his hallucinations, and he looks and says, yeah, they're there. But he knows they're not real. The disciples are not in this state of mind to have that kind of hallucination. And if they were, they would most likely hallucinate Jesus being ascended to Abraham's bosom. They would not be thinking about Jesus bodily risen from the dead. If anything, a vision of Jesus would most likely convince them that he was dead, not that he was alive. Also, hallucinations don't happen in groups like this. Hallucinations are not shared events. There is nothing outside of a person that other people can see. So if it wasn't a hallucination, then I contend there was something outside of him that they saw, and that would be Jesus risen. Instead of, say, Jesus recovering from a swoon, 
which would not convince him he was a lord of life, or the twin theory, as it were. And I also point out that Christianity is not the kind of religion that would have been made up at the time, either. Christianity violated every single social rule in the time for religion. You had a crucified Messiah, which no one would want to follow in. You had a group that was claiming to be the only way and saying everyone behind before them was wrong, with the exception of the Jews, which they thought they were the fulfillment of, which many Jews weren't really happy about that kind of idea. And you also had them in a society that was very pluralistic. They would have been seen as incredibly intolerant. Their morality was extremely difficult to follow and challenging society, and their belief was considered new. And in the ancient world, new beliefs were looked on with suspicion. After all, the ancients were closer to the gods than we were, so they would know better what the paths to the gods or God were. And yet Christianity, long before the time of Constantine, was growing even in the midst of persecution. The only thing that needs to be added to this, to grant this, and make this even more likely, is that God exists. And that's not the subject of a debate tonight, but if I was pushed, I would give my reasons for believing that God exists. But even if one is skeptical of God's existence, one could look and say, okay, but if a miracle did occur, then that does increase the likelihood that some being like God exists. In the end, the good news is that yes, Jesus did rise, and there is hope for mankind. Thank you. Thanks for your opening, Nick. Uh, Jim, uh, take it away, man. Whatever your first word starts is when it Okay, great. Can everybody hear me? Hello? Yes, very well. Very well. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Good deal. Just just checking and making sure. Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story of some eyewitness accounts. These eyewitness accounts are of Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Oliver Cowdery. Uh, they're from 1829, and they claim that in 1823, six years earlier, an angel descended from heaven and laid out the golden plates for Joseph Smith. The golden plates, once translated, became the doctrinal text of the, of the Mormons that is known as the Book of Mormon. Now, they all testified to this less than even uh, uh, seven years after it occurred. Uh, we have the signed statements to prove it. We have witnesses to this statement being taken. We have multiple letters of reference by esteemed members of the community who attested to the reliability and the integrity of these three men. Uh, and these weren't references just by anybody, um, but people that we can affirm who existed, people who were generals, judges, mayors, business owners, physicians, bankers, and law enforcement officials. And we have eight additional witnesses who testify to not only seeing these golden plates, but they eliminate all doubts by also testifying to holding the golden plates in their very hands, touching them, feeling them, experiencing them in, in their reality. 
Now, these eight witnesses, like the previous three, testified to this in a signed statement written only a year after these three witnesses wrote theirs. So in less than seven years after the event of the Golden Plates, we have 11 autographed firsthand eyewitness accounts of the Golden Plates of the Book of Mormon. All 11 of these witnesses proclaimed their beliefs until the day they died, even under the suffering and oppression and persecution by naysayers. Even though six of the 11 were excommunicated by the Mormon church, they still held to this belief until their dying day. Not a single contemporary account exists from that time that can be found that claims the golden plates and their divine origin is a lie. Now, we have people like Gary Habermas and Mike Lycona who, who look at these gospels and they, they can see that it's not all history. We know it's not history. Uh, there are so many things in there that uh, there are so many historical inaccuracies. Uh, but what they don't point out is the historical inaccuracies that we find in the empty tomb narratives, uh, in the resurrection narratives. Um, first of all, when did Jesus die? Um, did he die uh, before eating the Passover meal or after the Passover meal? Um, why did Joseph of Arimathea vote to, a member of the Sanhedrin, vote to execute Jesus? And then later accounts say that it was a consensus that everybody voted. And Luke tells us that Joe, uh, that Josephus didn't, that he was not, that he, he wasn't for it. He did not consent to it. Um, what were Jesus' last words before he died? Were there three hours of darkness? Um, we know that solar eclipses only last seven minutes and 32 seconds maximum. It's the longest one that we could possibly ever have is seven minutes and 32 seconds. And yet we're expected to believe that there was an earthquake uh, and a period of where the, the sun was completely blotted out or that the temple veil was rent in two when this earthquake happened and that the graves of the saints were opened. And not just one earthquake, but two earthquakes. There was a second earthquake when in Matthew, he says that a, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and a great earthquake occurred and it rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. So two earthquakes. Oh, but none of the other gospels mentioned this angel opening the tomb or, or, or earthquakes. In fact, whenever they mention the opening of the tomb, when the women go to the tomb, it's already opened. And there's not an angel sitting on the rock, but there's a young man sitting inside. No, that that's just Mark. In uh, there, uh, there's there's two men sitting inside. No, no, that's uh, that's Luke. Uh, no, th no, there there are there are two men who stand suddenly beside her. That's that's Luke. The the two angels sitting inside is in John, and it's only the second time when Mary comes back to the tomb. Um, Wait, was Mary, wait, did, did Mary know that Jesus had risen? Or is that just in the gospels? Because in, in John, Mary goes to the apostles and says, we don't, we don't know where they've, where they've taken Jesus. 
that they have moved him and we don't know where he is crying because she doesn't know where the body of her savior is. What are we to make of this? Are we to make of this that, um, oh, there's just four different eyewitness accounts and we should expect these small discrepancies? No, certainly not. Do we expect discrepancies in eyewitness accounts? Yes, but not to this extent. Something that we do expect in eyewitness accounts is consistency. Uh, will they vary on the minor details? Yes, but they won't. Uh, they won't vary on things like why were the women going to the tomb? For, for, first of all, you have to you have to think who are the sources of these. Um, allegedly, you have Mark, the translator of Peter. You have Matthew. You have Luke, and you have John, supposedly the apostles. Which of them were, were eyewitnesses? Let, let, let me concede for a minute that they're written by who they are said to be written by, and they're not. These are an, originally anonymous, an, anonymous accounts. Were any of them who who are alleged to have written these eyewitnesses? No. Some people say that Paul is, but Paul's appearance is very different from the others. Paul doesn't experience a bodily resurrected Jesus. He experiences a bright light or a loud sound, depending on which account you're talking about. There's there seems to be two different accounts, uh, and the people around him don't experience what he's experiencing. It seems much more likely to me that what we see here is what we see in 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 other literature of this sort and elsewhere in the Bible, we see a theological progression happening from Mark to Matthew to Luke to John. Well, sorry, from Paul to Mark to Matthew to Luke to John. You see this progression of Christology and and uh, and uh, doctrinal beliefs. There's no reason to believe that this is a historical account. Nobody knows where the tomb is. There is no tomb. After 2,000 years, they're still arguing, or after nearly 2,000 years, almost nearly 2,000 years, nobody knows where the tomb is. They can't decide. And every few years, somebody pops up a, a, a new one and claims that there is. The, the first recorded account of there being a tomb was during the time of Constantine when his uh, uh, mother went on a power trip and tried to establish all these places to establish a provenance for Christianity, the cave where Jesus was born, uh, the... Uh, the this tomb that she found with three crosses in it uh it's amazing it was underneath this this old temple and and somebody pointed it pointed it out even though up until then for hundreds of years we have no reference to this tomb i i think that it's safe to say that you can stop watching now and go and do your own homework and just objectively read these texts and the and the extra biblical texts especially or maybe just read the Bible. Just read one book at a time. These books were not written to be read uh, in context with these with these these other books. They, they weren't they weren't written to be complementary. These were meant to be independent accounts of what happened, of them telling their followers what happened. There's decades in between them, and and there are people who who might have gone their entire lives having only read or listened to one reading of this. So either you're saying that all these people in early Christianity weren't getting complete pictures 
or you're saying that God uh, inspired these texts to be uh, in, reinterpreted over and over again to the point that we're still here in 2021 debating this. And with that, I can see the rest of my time. You're muted, Russell. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, I got to say, the rooster in the background is <laughs> sorry. Pretty, I'm sorry. pretty amazing, man. Hey, it's, it's, it's part of the course for our channel, man. We do all sorts of crazy things on here, so it's it's yeah. fully fine. I loved it. It was yeah, you. It was you you do crazy you things, Russell. Goats, horses, yeah. dogs. You live, no a, you live on a farm? Yeah. yeah okay. Awesome, we're, we're, I mean, we can be accepted if we hear my cat whining for his food sometime in the next hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. Well, gentlemen, we're going to go into the five uh, to six minute rebuttals. Uh, Nick, I'll let you take it away, my friend. Okay. Um, you all can hear me, right? Yes. Okay. Well, I found that very interesting because I never once brought up the Gospels that I recall in my presentation. I went to Paul and I went to the scholarly sources about them. So my case does not rely on the Gospels. Can the Gospels be used? Sure. Their, their existence is good, but it's not necessary for a case that I made. I also find the bringing up of Joseph Smith to not really be a good parallel case. When Joseph Smith had ever seen the, uh, the plates, supposedly, they had to pray first, and then they would see the plates by faith. Joseph Smith is in charge of every single circumstance where the plates are seen. And Joseph Smith, sadly, does have a reputation of being a very convincing con man. There is nothing like that parallel in Christianity at all. There's no reason to think that Peter, Paul, and the others were intentionally being con men in the case that they wanted to get something. I mean, some people say, where Paul might have wanted to be on top of this fledgling Christian movement. Why? This was a movement that ended with him being beheaded. And if you look at his, uh, his life in Second Corinthians, where he describes everything he went through, these are hardly what we call job benefits. He had things going very good in the Sanhedrin. And yet, he instead chose to go join the Jesus movement. Usually, if someone commits some sort of fraud, it's done, as Jay Warner Wallace has said, for either power, money, or sex. There's no indication the disciples were getting any of these to such a great extent. As for the tomb, I'm not surprised if it's not really talked about as a visiting place, because after all, Josephus says when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem, you would hardly know that there had been a city there to begin with. Now, we can talk about a lot of the so-called contradictions in the Gospels, but those aren't relevant to my case. But you can even look at a case such as, say, Polybius and Livy, who both describe Hannibal making his approach to Rome. Both of them contradict hopelessly. No one doubts that this happened. We can dispute, geez, what day of the week was Jesus crucified on? That's a good discussion to have. That doesn't mean he wasn't crucified. That's the only point that needs to be established. Who saw Jesus at the tomb or who saw the empty tomb when? How many women went there? 
again, very good points to discuss, but not relevant because the main question to ask is, was Jesus buried and did he rise from the dead? And I noticed nothing was said about for witnesses aside from comparing it to Joseph Smith. But even then, that wouldn't work because just because there could be similarities doesn't mean one account was faked. After all, suppose I told you there was a ship that set sail from England and went across the Atlantic. And yet in April, this ship that was said to be unsinkable hit an iceberg and so many lives were lost because there weren't enough lifeboats for the people involved. Oh, yeah, we know that. That's that movie Titanic you're talking about. Nope. I'm not talking about Titanic. I'm talking about the Titan in a book called Futurity. The Wreck of a Titan that was written about 15 years or so before the Titanic took place. You could look and say, well, those accounts are similar, so the Titanic didn't happen. No, each thing has to be taken on a case-by-case basis. And that's about five minutes for me, so I'll let it go from there. All right. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Jim, you're up, my friend. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm unmuted, right? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Uh, I just want to start off by saying that there's a a very good reason why I didn't mention any of those things is because my opening statement wasn't a rebuttal to your opening statement. Um, But let's see. uh, My rebuttal to you, see, your case um, talks about the creed and how it listed many people. Uh, yes, there is an early creed. I agree to everything you said about the dating, everything like that. Uh, don't don't uh, disagree with you any anywhere there, except for the fact that uh, m- some scholars they vary on whether they include things like the five hundred or James. Uh, James is not attested to um, uh, as being a uh, appeared to anywhere in the the gospels um your argument very much depends on the gospels because without the gospels you wouldn't have these extra biblical um references to them because they are not referencing just any uh any any event they're referencing the gospels uh let's see the the 500 there's no reference to the 500 anywhere um, there's not there's no reference to even uh, um, even a place or circumstance where Jesus could have appeared to possibly 500. Um, burial was done for the purity of the land, uh, not for criminals. It, it, it was not uh, it was not done for the purity of the land where they buried them was done for the purity of the land because if a person was cursed, supposedly, then wherever they were buried or wherever they they were were uh, were killed or left or if a body was left up past uh, past sunset for for Jews it would become cursed land. Uh, the Jews used dirt used dirt fields called potter's fields that they would use to bury these uh, executed criminals who were burned or stoned or hung or uh, you know uh, beheaded. Um, Paul agrees that Jesus was buried. Yeah, he says Jesus was buried. He doesn't say anything about a tomb. Paul mentions nothing about a tomb or the the women who uh, who are the first ones on the scene. Paul doesn't mention any of the women seeing them. Paul mentions uh, the the twelve disciples. What twelve disciples? There's eleven. Judas killed himself. How? That's that's another story of of, of contradictory uh, um, data being provided in the New Testament. But um, I digress. 
hallucinations are not shared events. That is just absolutely untrue. Hallucinations are often documented as shared events. Uh, There are many, many, many cases of shared events. Uh, There were only, oh, that the Christian religion was somehow different because uh, they were the only ones claiming that, that, that they're, they're the only ones and that the, their God's the only one that's right. Uh, do you not remember the Jews? I mean, the, the Jews most certainly thought that they were the, the one that was correct. Um, let's see here. Uh, so, and I mean, it's, I didn't hear any of my my opening statement being being uh, being addressed except for uh, the 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 golden plates and saying that you found something wrong with that because it doesn't uh, let's see because is it, he that Joseph Smith is in charge of circumstance and is a very good con man. There's no parallel here. The Catholic Church comes to mind. Uh, you, you you can't tell me that that things that people who run uh, uh, these dogmatic conventions where they have to vote on what everybody has to believe or they can't be in their club isn't some sort of a con man or in charge of circumstance. Uh, you say talk about the movement ending with him with Paul being beheaded. Where do you get that from? Because the the very first occurrence of him being beheaded is tens of decades later after, after the fact, and nowhere does it talk about Paul being beheaded in, uh, in the new Testament, even though you say that it's about his entire life. Uh, you're not surprised that the tomb isn't mentioned or venerated because it was destroyed. Why, why does that surprise you? Because it was there were many things that were destroyed, many Jewish things that were destroyed that were still venerated after the fact because people still knew where they were. Um, supposedly, somebody pointed out that the tomb of Jesus was underneath this temple. Uh, apparently, they were supposed to have known all, all, the, uh, all along, but yet it still hadn't been venerated. So you're telling me it was just, just secret? Um, even though it was completely legal for them to exercise their, their religion at this point? Uh, these, these points are, are relevant comparing the story of the Titan to the Titanic uh, and and saying, well, that means that the Titanic isn't true. No, no, it doesn't. It means that one of them or both of them must not be true at least one or, or, or none of them, but they can't both be true simultaneously. And just like those two can't be the truth simultaneously, these five, or even just these four, we'll just let's go with the Gospels, can't be true. Or if you want to include the extra biblical sources, which you'd be shooting yourself in the foot if you did, then we have to compare all of them against each other and say which of these are true. Two uh, seconds left. <laughs> ta-da. All right. Well, gentlemen, that, that was very good. Thank you, uh, Jim. Uh, well, Nick, I'm going to let you take it from here. This is going to be our uh, cross-examination and kind of discussion time. So uh, I'll let you go with the first question that you can uh, ask Jim. Did Emma Smith ever see the plates? Yes. How? Physically. He physically saw them. Where do you have a testimony of that? There are um, eight of them who signed a testimony. Um, 
one year after this uh, the original one was was written by the the three witnesses, um, and the only one of the three witnesses who had uh, said anything about it being a vision was David Whitmer. The other the other two, and and that and that's quite that's questionable. And the but the other two uh, believe they actually uh, saw this. Were any of those listed as Emma Smith? Nope. Okay, so there was no record then, but you were presented of Emma Smith seeing the plates. Are you aware that yes. the plates were supposedly kept in her house, but yet they were always kept under wraps? I, I, I just had told to you clean that, around them. I just told you that there were eight people with a, with signed witness mm -hmm. um, uh, saying that they held these plates, that they touched them. They they mm -hmm. they, 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 they they saw them with their very own eyes. Mm -hmm. And yep. Emma Smith wasn't one of them. I'm sorry, what? Emma Smith wasn't one of them. Why is that relevant? If anyone would have seen the plates, wouldn't it have been the wife of Joseph Smith since they were kept I, in the it, house? It's it's irrelevant. She could have, but I'm telling you that that of, of, of signed witness statements, we have eight of them. Mm -hmm. And I still contend that Joseph Smith was in charge of these. Have you read uh, Rob Bowman's book on uh, okay. Jesus' resurrection and Joseph's visions? So is that is that is that so you're just going to dismiss it because because you, you because you think that Joseph Smith coerced them or something? Joseph Smith makes it very clear that they were seen through the eyes of faith. The, Instead, the, have you no, met the Dark no, Covenant? They they are talking about the original three witnesses. You're not talking. I'm not talking, I'm talking about the eight witnesses who a year later is making this written signed statement. That is saying that they they're testifying to holding the golden plate. So, uh, are you claiming that Joseph Smith forged their signatures, or or what? No, I'm not claiming that Joseph Smith forged their signatures. Uh, are I'm you claiming, claiming he made up the story? No, I'm not claiming that either. Then what are you claiming? I'm claiming that we have reason to doubt what they really saw, since they say they've seen them through the eyes of faith, and since Joseph who, Smith was in charge that? of every single circumstance. Who said that? That's what's said in the Doctrines and Covenants. That is not what is said in this witness statement. It's in this witness statement, it is said that they held them with their very own hands. But Doctrines and Covenants, yeah, that doesn't equate though, to being able to see the plates themselves, especially since if the plates were made of material that they are said to be of, it's very difficult to hold them with your own hands. No, it's... Why, why would you say that? It's, they're made out of gold. They're made yeah. out of gold. Why is that difficult to hold with your hands? Because the gold with the circumstances that it's been measured, the length and width, would have been extremely heavy. This has been done by counter-Mormon apologists to Mormon <clears throat> churches and people. That's why they've tried to find different kind of material similar to gold that the plates would have been made of. Okay, so, um, so then I can contend that because the women wouldn't have been bringing spices to the tomb because the Roman guards would not have guarded the tomb because the Jewish Sanhedrin would not have had a trial during the Passover because, uh, because the women would not have bought spices on a holy day. Uh, and the multiple other differences that we have in the gospels, then I have more than good reason, according to, to, to your standards for acceptance that, uh, that it can be totally dismissed. No, I'm giving you different reasons here. And my case hasn't been based on the gospels. But, at all. but what you you're, is, is you're basing what one person said, and you're applying it to all eight of these people who say that they held it with their very own hands. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I'm saying that Rob Bowman makes a strong argument against this in his book on Jesus' resurrection and in Joseph's visions, that Joseph was in charge every single time. What is, what is that argument? Because, I mean, we don't have that book in front of us here today, so. Joseph was in charge of all the appearances. He had to make sure that the people were there when he wanted them to. He orchestrated every scenario that took place. You don't see that going on in the appearances of Jesus. Uh, how do you know that? Because who's in charge? I mean, there's no, so no, many. No, because about Joseph Smith being in charge, that is a post hoc um, uh, um, like uh, application. So, I mean, it, you're only going by these certain accounts and saying, well, it, it doesn't say that. Well, it might not say that in the Gospels, but later texts, and when you put all the Gospels right next to each other, you can see that there are. Are, are, are plenty of reasons to to see why this is a a something that is made up and something that is uh, that, that is repeated. Uh, we can see that Mark seems to be very much a uh, a an authority to Matthew and uh, and and Luke. Uh, we see that John obviously has his own theological motivations, um, and they are reflected in the changes in the text. <clears throat> Yeah, again, though, I never went to the Gospels at all. But let's uh, go on some other points here, because I don't want to spend all the time talking about Joseph Smith here. You mentioned the events being written about decades later, oftentimes. Isn't that the case with most of ancient history, though? No. Like, take take uh, take somebody who was 500 years before them, Alexander the Great. Um, mm -hmm. Alexander the Great has his historian writing with him um, – during the time of these events, uh, uh, Vespasian, ve multiple accounts of Vespasian are done by contemporaries of his time, uh, people that that lived mm -hmm. and died during during his rule. Sure. If you're talking about an emperor, people are going to write about the emperor. And for Alexander the Great, he, you know, he had the historian from our writings about him, if our sources don't come until centuries later. But if we take someone like, say, Plutarch, who wrote several lives, those lives are written decades, if not centuries, after the events as well. And they're also highly mythologized. They're also both taken as quite reliable. There's no doubt some things in there that are incorrect. No, they, they, but they, they are they are reliable to to see to look at and see what people might have believed at that time. But mm -hmm. like the Bible, uh, it is heavily mythologized because people, uh, you know had developed these these uh, these these theological beliefs that needed to be adhered to. And the reason that there's four of them isn't because four different people just decided to write a story. It's because four different people needed to write a story. they they and they had to make certain changes and certain alterations in order for it to fit the audience that they're preparing it for. And the places that we see the biggest differences are the things that most likely didn't happen. I'm curious how one would know why they wrote things like that, like some sort of psychological examination of it. Sure. So, um, for example, like Paul's letter to Corinth, we can see what the problems were in the Church of Corinth. And one of these problems uh, seemed to have been that a majority of the population um uh, that they were having, they were having problems with with women in a, in authoritative positions. Uh, that they were having problems with um, trying to uh, to uh, rectify the uh, 
the the resurrection and what that meant for them uh, in terms of uh, Second Temple Judaic uh, um, eschatolo eschatological beliefs. Um, uh, you know, because at the time, you know, the idea of the soul and the idea of a resurrection was something that was very much um, uh, dual there, even in the, the Jewish population, because uh, in Second Temple Judaism is whenever we see a resurrection of the body. That's what some people start to to believe in, uh, which is what Jesus believed in, Jesus' followers. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have other people who believe that it's just the resurrection of the, the spirit. So they're, they're written with, with a, a purpose. Uh, for example, um, we can see that, that, uh, that parts of the, uh, some gospels were written to respond to, um, to Gnostic beliefs. Um, people like, uh, like docetists, um, uh, are you finished with that thought? Yeah. Okay. It sounded like you might have been wanting to say more. I want to make sure. Oh, uh, well, I, I realized that I'd probably been talking long enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I still didn't see how we can get the whole psychological things, but I, I'm also curious about the it, whole it thing. Anything do, it doesn't have anything to do with, with, with psychology necessarily, but with mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. Well, I find it interesting that you say it's, it was done because there's for instance, these problems at Corinth, but when we look at the Gospels, you don't see any of these kinds of questions being addressed in language in the Gospels, such as Jesus yeah. being the Son of Man, doesn't really show up too often in the epistles. Well, well, right, because that wasn't a term that really went over well, because you had, like I said, two different beliefs about, about you had this, this dualism developed during Second Temple Judaism. And part of that dualism was the interpretation of the Son of Man from being um, a, a human figure to actually being some sort of a, a, a divine being. Okay. By my reckoning, I've probably only got about three minutes left of questioning, and then I think I'll turn it over to you. So I'd like to talk about Fiza. Hallucinations. Okay. Could you give another example of a mass hallucination? Um, I, I mean, I I don't know any like dates or, or anything like that that I can like provide for you. Um, I mean, it, just real quick though, I can pull it right here on psychology. I just just typed it in. Um, let's see, references. Okay. Uh, mass hallucination, hallucination um, uh, is a phenomenon in which a large group of people, usually in physical proximity to each other, all experience the same hallucination simultaneously. Mass hallucination is a common explanation for mass UFO sightings, appearances of the Virgin Mary, and other paranormal uh, phenomenon. Uh, okay, let's, con let's consider some, like, say, a UFO sighting. Could it okay. be established that there was absolutely nothing there that no one saw? Um, can that be established? No, you can't really prove a negative. Okay, well, I think you can. But okay, can supposing a bunch of people do missee something, that's not the same thing as a mass hallucination. If there's a weather balloon passing overhead, this is purely hypothetical, and a bunch of my neighbors see it, and they think they're seeing a UFO, that's not a hallucination, is it? How would you prove that, 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 that they didn't see anything? Where, if you wanted to check and see if there was a weather balloon, you could look and see if there was something flying overhead at the time. You could check with weather sources or military equipment, anything like that. You might not be able to prove it, but the point is, right. you're trying to say it was a hallucination. But if right. 
They're really right, so well. well we, can just, we, can, we can go to history. We can go to historians. We can say, we can say um, well, was there ever an occurrence where the temple veil was, was written to? So we'd go to the Jewish sources, nothing about it. We would say, was there, was there an earthquake or uh, two earthquakes days apart? Nothing about it. Will we see anything about, uh, about somebody um, being said to have risen from the dead? The only thing that we have from it is Christian interpolations um, in in uh, in very very other scant evidence. Um, yeah, but those wouldn't be hallucinations, though. If because you don't have mass people coming and saying, "Hey, we saw the temple there split in two or something like that. I'm saying if it's a hallucination, right. there can be no external reference. There now, is. Really that's, like what, that's what I'm saying is that there is no external reference to. Jesus appearing to the 500 or, or, or to Jesus rising from the dead. Now, what you're saying is that when these 500 had this claim to see something, there was nothing external to them that they saw. And it'd be the very interesting to hear how you establish that. There, there is no 500 making the claim. There's, just, there's, there's Paul making the claim that 500 people are making a claim. Do you think he's lying? Yes. You don't? Why? Why would I? Be, be, why do you think he's telling the truth? Because there's a great network of communication going on between the churches, and Paul's reputation is okay. on the line. And if he lies about something like that, his reputation is shot, and there'll be no reason to take it as scripture anymore at all. Okay, how would people in Corinth verify what was going on in Galilee or Jerusalem? They go there and they'd ask around. They find out who these witnesses were. Travel was very easily they, done no, in the world at the time. No, not not from Corinth to Jerusalem. Yep. Wasn't that's a ship ride? Yeah, and it was still very doable it, at the it time. It was doable, yes, yep. but but very few people would have would have undertaken that. Um, very few people would have uh, uh, would have even made the journey there and back without either dying or getting misplaced, very few people would have um, come back with the story. So uh, a very small percentage of a small percentage might have been able to do it that you're, and you're totally just, uh, just, uh, just uh, presupposing that because the only reference that we have to the 500 isn't anywhere, but Paul. So we don't have anything from any of these churches that you're claiming us is saying 500. We don't have anything from, from anybody, uh, the, even the, the people who would probably be the eyewitnesses. Guys, yeah, well, really, really good yeah. discussion here, uh, Nick. I'll give you, I'll give you a response, but then I want to uh, flip it over to Jim yeah, and start letting him throw some stuff at you. Yeah, well, with the whole thing about uh, very few people would make it, that's all we need to be to make it. The church would not have to send everyone to the church. They'd say, okay, we're going to take these people that we trust, and we're going to have them go and ask. And we know there was communication going on between Paul and the church. Because he'd say, well, you know, in response to the questions that you asked and about how he sent various letters to them dealing with the problems they had, communication was going on. There was a network of exchange going back and forth. And Josephus at times would appear to public knowledge as well. The only argument we have here against the 500 is pretty much arguments from silence, which I don't really find convincing. Yeah, I, I agree. There was communication going on, but no communication of the 500. Which is just begging the question, I think. All right, Jim, over to you. Okay, okay uh, let's see. Uh, why, why did the women visit the tomb? Because they were women who were mourning 
Jesus's death and wanted to go and do what they could, even if they didn't think they could get to do anything. They wanted to go anyway. What do you, what do you mean by do what they could? They wanted to be able to at least offer spices or embalm the body or do something of that sort. If they could, they wanted to mourn. Mourning was extremely important to the Jews. Yeah. Um, are you aware that the mourning process does not involve uh, the application of the spices. The spices were done as a funerary preparation, not uh, not for a a uh, a theological purpose, but in order to keep the body from stinking while they were uh, preparing and and um, bringing the body to the to the uh, burial place. And I think the women quite likely would have also wanted to take part in doing something, since they would have no knowledge for sure that this had happened to Jesus, and they were wanted to do anything they could to honor him. Did the women witness the burial? I believe the text says that they did. Okay. Did they not um, witness Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds, an astronomical amount, even more than, uh, uh, than Gamaliel was buried with? <clears throat> I don't remember if they said they did or not, but even if they did, they still could have wanted to do something on their own as well. Um, why? That, that, that has, it's not customary. It's not, uh, it, has, it has nothing to do with how a person feels. Um, now, now, that, they they, now, that, now that there were things left on the inside of the tomb, but um, are you aware that it was illegal to enter a tomb without permission from Roman rules? Yep. Okay, so are you saying that the women had sought this permission? The women would have had no delusions, I think, of being able to overpower Roman guards if they were there and break into a tomb or push a stone away. I don't expect women greatly mourning someone they love to necessarily be thinking in the most rational ways at the time. None of us do that when we're grieving a loved one. I think they went and they were saying, well, maybe we can get in. We'll find out if they'll let us in just just to put spices on him. Okay. Um, how did the women get the spices um, if, it, if the shops would have been closed on, on, a, uh, on the Sabbath? I think Craig Blomberg has something that he's written on this, but spices, they could have very well just had them on their own already, it, or they could have bought them it, it says that they purchased shortly them. before Sunday morning. After all, yeah. And so after the sun went down, they could have bought spices. Sundown to sundown. Right. So the sundown before is still part of the Sabbath. When the sundown <clears throat> would have ended, they could have gone and bought the spices, I'm saying. Or they could have just had them already at home. The shops were closed. And they could have already had them at home. But it says that they bought them. Mm. And, and also, if if they were going to bring these spices because they want to do something on their own, um, first of all, Josephus and or, or sorry, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they didn't wash the body. They didn't do any of these other um, uh, funerary preparations. So why would the the women just be bringing it just for, for this purpose? Uh, and why do only some of the gospels say that they're bringing the spices and the other ones just say that they're going to visit the tomb, uh, which is problematic in itself because the visitation of the tomb as a 
uh, time of mourning didn't happen. I mean, for at least seven days after it, because the family would be mourning in their own homes. They wouldn't leave their homes. And that's something interesting when you talk about the burial of Jesus with the family, because Jesus isn't buried in a family tomb. And I contend the burial was done. It mm-hmm. It's really a shaming process, I think. Do you have case. one example so, of, a, of a tomb during that period that is not a familial tomb? Um, <clears throat> I because can't they, think they, of one they, right they, off. They were. But, Every single one we have is a family tomb. Nobody had their own tomb. Now, it, it's possible that, uh, that, that Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb that was just that, that, that was his family's that, uh, that he just started like for him yeah. because maybe he had been from Arimathea yeah. and just moved to Jerusalem. That's, that's yeah. possible, but yeah. there's a tomb called the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. My, my statement was that Jesus was not buried in the tomb of his family. They were a poor family. We have no indication they owned a tomb right. that Jesus was buried in, and it would have been shameful for Jesus to have not been buried in his family tomb. It would have already, it would already been shameful because he was a criminal. Criminals were yeah. not allowed those type of burials. Well, we also do have, the, I believe his name was Johann, who was found buried in a tomb no, with the nail no, in his No, he wasn't found buried. He was found in an ossuary box. So an ossuary box was a place where, where a year later, the family would come back and retrieve their family's bones, wash it with wine, and place them in these boxes. So it's possible that they knew where in the potter's field that their criminal son or, or father was buried and that they came, came later and retrieved the bones. Uh, but they would not have been placed in the uh, – he would not have been put in the tomb um, uh, at this, at the the at the original point, um, and then come back and put it in ossuary box and put it in the same tomb. That wouldn't have happened. Oh, I am. I'm still not sure what you're getting at with that. And- so I'm saying that that just because of the fact that there are there is the bones of a crucified man in an ossuary box inside of a tomb does not mean that he was buried in the tomb. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I do think it would be probably pretty difficult to go and locate a body a year later after that, but that. <clears throat> so, so if Jesus was buried in a potter's field, let's just say, um, mm-hmm. and that the stories that we have of his, uh, his, of the empty tomb, which come from Mark, um, or we can, we can even say Paul, we can just say just a few years later, it would be very difficult for them to go back and find Jesus' body to verify that, wouldn't it? If that was the case. Okay, so why could that not be the case? Can, can you repeat what it was you're arguing exactly here? Yeah, sure. So do you believe it is possible, or do you believe that it is possible that the case may be that Jesus was buried in a potter's field? I don't see any good evidence for that, but I, I base it on the testimony of Jody Manus and, and Gaza from Mesh and others. Okay, well, they, they aren't eyewitnesses. They'll be ex- Jody Magnus is the expert in Jewish burial practices at the University of North Carolina Chapel here, where Bart okay, Herman also teaches. Th- okay, and, and what did they, what, 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 how were criminals buried? <clears throat> criminals, <clears throat> criminals, I don't see any indication, think they weren't buried. 
in anything else at the time. No, that is that is quite a lie, and I'm pretty sure that 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 uh, if they work at a University of North Chapel Hill and they specialize in Jewish burial practices, then they would highly disagree as well because they uh, criminals were buried in trench graves or potter fields. I'm saying what Jody Magnus says is the burial of Jesus is entirely consistent with what we find in archaeological practice. As described in the Gospels. Yes, until you take into account the fact that he was a criminal. Do you think that she doesn't know that Jesus was crucified as a criminal? Um, I, I, I don't know what she says, but uh, I, I, I know for a, uh, a fact that most historians, that most scholars of uh, the Second Temple period, most scholars of of the Palestine area or of, of the uh, Roman crucifixion or of Jewish burial practices would all tell you that a condemned person was not placed in a tomb because that, that tomb would have been uh, desecrated. That tomb would have been made, made cursed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Granting that, that still doesn't rule out though, the text being consistent about Jesus being buried and it, still, as Magnus says, being consistent with burial practices at the time. It is not consistent with the burial, with the, the with criminal burial practices. It is consistent with, with contemporary uh, uh, burials that we, that we know of, but, uh, but of buried criminals, every single uh, hi- historical text that we have, every, every single reference that we can find to burials or burial practices show us that if a person was a was a criminal and they were executed, then uh, it, it is uh, it is very very few and far between that they were given a a decent burial, especially and a poor person like like Jesus um, being given a uh, a burial by a, the person who condemned him. I mean, you think that's that that's that that makes sense? Well, Jesus wasn't buried by the person. Who condemned him as if there was only one person who did it? There was a ruling he was body. One of many. He was there one was of many. Body, he, but, but he had to have a vote. Um, yeah, I was going to finish that first. There was a ruling body for Sanhedrin that Joseph of Arimathea was a part of. Do we have any indication that Joseph of Arimathea would have voted yes, condemn him? We don't. And yet, yes, we do. We do. It says that, that they voted unanimously and not just Joseph of Arimathea, but you also have the issue when you bring John into the mix, you have the issue of Nicodemus because Nicodemus wasn't just a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the ruling highest priest in the Sanhedrin. I'd like to, I don't remember the text ever saying it was unanimous. It just says they yes, voted. Yes, yes it, it does. But, um, I, I have it right here. Hang on. But it was also... If this account was fake, it's not the kind of thing I think they would have made up as well. Since Why not? Since we very easily shown, no, Joseph Arimathea didn't bury him. The Sanhedrin wasn't involved in the burial. That would have been very easy for the critics to disprove. Well, actually, if Pilate would have surrendered the body to anybody, it would have been either the family member or to the Sanhedrin. Yeah, I agree with that one because the Sanhedrin put him to death, so they would have a put the responsibility of taking care of a body, and Joseph of Arimathea would say, "Okay, I'll go ahead and take it and bury him." But that's not what it says, though, is it? It says that that 
that he that Joseph of Arimathea got up the courage because he was he was so scared of of yeah. Pilate and what and what the other Jews might do to him mm-hmm. that he went in secret and requested the body of Jesus. Yeah. So wow. what you're saying is is that it is uh, it is inaccurately reporting what actually occurred. No, I'm saying Joseph, in his capacity as a member of the Sanhedrin, could have very easily taken it upon himself to do that and say, I'm doing this on behalf of Sanhedrin. It was an act of courage on his part because he didn't know if Pilate would grant him the body or not. So why would he have originally um, voted? Well, even though Luke says that he didn't consent to it. Um, so did, did he not consent or did he or did he vote or both? Uh, when you say he didn't consent, are you saying Joseph and Mephia didn't consent to what exactly? To jo- to Jesus being uh um being uh indicted or not being indicted but being uh being found guilty. We don't know what he did. In Luke, it says that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent. Yeah, so we don't know if it's just he voted no, or if he didn't vote, or what. Well, it's either oh, he no, voted no, or or he voted unanimously, or he or you voted as a member of the, of the of the, uh, the 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 Sanhedrin. So either he's not a member of the Sanhedrin, or he did vote to execute Jesus and Nicodemus. So two, the the two people who buried him voted to execute Jesus, or he didn't, or he voted no on the matter. Then the then Matthew and Mark are lying when they say that they voted unanimously. That still hasn't been shown where they've said that. What well, would you like me to pull up the verses? Sure. Okay. Let's see. Okay, while I'm looking for that, let me actually real quick, let me see here. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, why did uh, did Mary not know where the body of Jesus was or what happened to it when she was told in the, go- in, the uh, in the synoptic gospels that he had risen from the dead? <clears throat> oh, are you talking about, you mean Mary Magdalene, right? Yes. Okay, and I'm taking your, you're talking about when uh, she goes to John and in, in the Gospel of John says, we don't know where they were, where he is, right? Yes. Okay. My thing is, she could have had a hard time believing it at the time. That's one possibility. Or it could have been that the women went at various times. Maybe she was a late arriver and just saw and didn't know where he was still. Maybe she saw the angel, just didn't know what to think about it. There's any number of different reasons for it. Wait, what was was the last part that you said? I said there could be any number of different reasons. No, right right before that. I said, we don't know exactly what order the women arrived in or when they arrived. It could have been various times. It's not guaranteed they all got up and 
went together at the exact same time. Mary could have been a late arriver and got there after everyone had already left. Well, okay. So John says that it that that she that they arrived um, while it was still dark. So Mm -hmm. what? Whether we can agree on the time or not, um, we can agree that John is, if not the same time, the earliest one. And John is the one that we have the problem with, Mary not knowing where the body is. So we know that. Uh, so are, are you saying that that happened first and then the other gospel accounts happened second and completely just didn't didn't even mention Mary's original discovery? I'm not sure what you mean by saying John is the earliest one. Be, because John says that they, when they arrived to the tomb, it was still dark, and yet the mm-hmm. the synoptics um, all mention it being after the sun had risen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but okay, and, and, and then and, and then you have to say that in Matthew, when the women see the angel descend and the and the and roll away the stone and sit on top of it that that happened after the original discovery of the empty tomb. Uh, Mm -hmm. So she went in John and the tomb was open and then she went back again, which is recorded in Matthew and the tomb was closed and they saw it open. And then they went again and then it was a little boy sitting on the inside. And then they went again and then two people appeared on the inside and then they went again and finally Mary saw Jesus. Okay, I'm not sure where you're getting this thing where they went five different times or so. I mean, I think because they would have had to have in order for your, uh, in order to to harmonize these these diff- very different accounts. Why? Okay, was the tomb open or closed when the women got there? I honestly don't <clears throat> would have to say. I'd want to look at it. A bit more to be sure. I don't. I haven't worked out a harmonization of the accounts. In, in Mark, Luke, and John, it was already open. In Matthew, mm-hmm. Matthew, uh, the, the women witness the angel descend, roll back the tomb, uh, the 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 the, uh, this, the stone door guarding the tomb, uh, which is when an earthquake occurs, and then the angel sits on top of it and tells them Jesus is not here. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mark. They arrive, the tomb's already open, and there's a young man uh, sitting on the inside who tells them that. In Luke, they go, uh, they see the, the tomb already open, stone already rolled away. They go mm-hmm. into the tomb to investigate, and all of a sudden, poof, mm-hmm. two men stand next, uh, appear next to them. And they say, Jesus is not here, blah, blah, blah. And in John... When Mary goes, when uh, Mary goes there, well, it's got to be Mary and some other woman, at least one other woman, because it says we later. Yeah. Um, she says uh, she doesn't see any angel. No angel tells her anything. She runs and tells the apostles that somebody's taken the body of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do you harmonize those? How how can you determine which of those is the Titan and which of those is the Titanic? If any of them are the Titanic. Well, I'd say that we'd have to show an absolute contradiction has taken place in all of them. And okay, even, what, even if there were, closed? again, I'm not sure, but either way, even if there is a contradiction, that doesn't rule out the main emphasis of the accounts. Like we all use the example of Polybius and Livy on mm-hmm. Hannibal going to Rome. Those two contradict. No one doubts right. Hannibal was going to Rome. Maybe not, maybe not one small contradiction, but 
when but the discovery of the empty tomb is the evidence for the resurrection because there is no account of the actual resurrection itself so we have to depend on these accounts of the empty tomb yeah nick i'll let you finish responding to that but we're going to jump into closings here because half mm -hmm. hour goes by quick <laughs> yeah yeah, it does. Where the discovery of the empty tomb isn't for proof of a resurrection. It's needed, but it's that's not all that's there. You need the appearances as well. Well, Paul seems to think that the resurrection was is 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 very important. And oh yeah, he is, but oh, okay, he's okay, so, not but, saying the barrier, the, the empty tomb alone proves it. The appearances team up with that too. But the appearances can be explained by other means. An empty tomb, I admit, is very strong evidence, but we don't have that evidence. I think we do have that evidence. I think that the Gospels might have differ on some details, but they all agree. The tomb is empty, and no one really disputes this for at least the first three centuries or so of Christianity. And yep. nobody has well, a tomb for at least the first three right. centuries of Christianity. All right, that's 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 it. We're going to run into our closing remarks. Gentlemen, thanks again. That was a riveting conversation. I wish uh, we had a little bit more time, but I am going to ask you guys before you get into your closings. Do you guys want to do some uh, questions and answers from the audience? Do you yeah, mind? I'd love to. Sure. Right, sure. Sure. We'll uh, put some up. I'll uh, guys, you heard them. So, um, Nick, if you would like to start your closing, you got five minutes. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for this. This has been a fun discussion. I hope everyone has a great Easter as well. And I like to remind everyone the central claims, Jesus crucified, Jesus buried, empty tomb, Jesus seen alive again. If I was told, we have a strong case for resurrection of Jesus. And I would hope that a discussion like this will not be the end of you're looking at the question, but you'll go out and you'll read the best scholars that you can on the, the, uh, on the case. And I, keep in mind, as, well, as I said at the start, if the resurrection is true, all of history is changed. This is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself, if not the most important one. If the resurrection is true, then there is hope for humanity, the problem of evil has an answer, and we will live again. This is a message of Easter. A message of Easter is not about bunnies and eggs and chocolate. It's about life, about God overcoming evil, him coming into the world in the person of Jesus, and overcoming the problem of sin and evil and bringing forgiveness. And that'll be my closing. All right, Jim, you're up, man. Five minutes. Okay, um, guys, I'm—I really don't know what to say. I—I um, I would guess I would repeat what Mr. Peters just said in regards to going out and finding it yourself. Um, go out without presuppositions. Don't don't go out trying to reaffirm what you already believe. Go out with the courage to stand in to stand with your convictions in your back pocket, knowing that you don't need them because they should be able to stand on their own. Because if they're true, then you should be that confident. And if, 
if your convictions are not true, then you should want to believe what is true. Um, as somebody who spent almost 30 years as a Christian, it's scary. I, I You don't have to tell me that. And you don't, it, it, you, you might not want to a- admit it to me or to somebody else, but you can't hide it from yourself to, to question <clears throat> something that you've always held in your heart to be 100% just irrevocably just part of the cosmos, just something that is just core foundational to you and who you are and everything you know. It is hard to say that might not be true. But the truth is much so is worth so much more than how you feel. And I encourage you all to go out and find that truth. Thank you. All right. Well, now we're just going to do some questions and answers. We got two already. Um, I'm going to put them up on the screen. And yeah. Uh, Jim, are you aware of Josephus in War of the Jews? Uh, 4317 states that. Jews indeed broke the laws to ensure crucified family members and friends got a proper burial as their custom. Okay. I mean, and that's, that's not, uh, that's, that's fine. But then you have this, you have uh, in the gospel that, that shows that it wasn't something that was done in necessarily in secret or in private. You have somebody who uh, like in, in Matthew, for example, you have, them going to Pilate and asking for guards to go and guard and seal this tomb. And when they would seal this tomb, it was only the Romans uh, because they were the ruling authority who could seal this tomb. And they'd have uh, probably as many as 10 um, centurions, just 10 strong Roman guards taken off of their normal duty and being placed to guard this tomb. But why in the hell would, would, would Pilate do that? Um, it, it, it does not make sense. All right, Nick, do you want to respond to that at all? Yeah, that would be done to prevent mourning taking place publicly at the tomb because this was seen as a crucified figure and they did not want the family to come and mourn, which is something interesting because Jesus' Mm. family is apparently nowhere near the tomb when Jesus is buried. I think that the guards will prefer not to prevent the capture of the body so much, but to prevent... People are coming by who would mourn Jesus. Hmm, that sounds like an argument from silence. No, it's just the way that the practices were done back then to avoid mourning. Well, why would, why would they be wanting to prevent mourning? Because they didn't want Jesus to get any honor whatsoever. You mean like a burial in a tomb? That would be done, as was said in Josephus, for the protection of the land. For the protection of the land. So if they were worried about the protection of the land, they would have put them where they put other cursed individuals, right? Outside of Jerusalem or Palestine in general, yeah, they probably wouldn't have followed the burial practices. But in Palestine, Jews were allowed to follow burial practices that they held. So why wouldn't they have put them in the potter's field? Because that would have led to the desecration of the land. It was already desecrated. That's why it's a potter's field. They went have <clears throat> they put it <clears throat> in there because they would not want some animal to come and get part of the body and bring it up. So they would they wouldn't bury anybody then in the ground. They would have been, it would have been possible perhaps to bury someone long after the body had decayed, but not immediately. 
Okay, so, so just let me be clear. You're, you're claiming that in first century Palestine that they did not put anybody under the dirt, like in the ground. I'm not saying that necessarily, but I'm saying I don't see the evidence they did that with Jesus. Well, you either you're saying that, either you're well, guys, saying that, or you're saying that wild animals have a, an affinity for the taste of Messiah. Yeah, I think no. I think you guys are just gonna have to agree to disagree all that. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, know, I know that's a good it's a Q and A, not further discussion. <laughs> yeah, so. it's all good. It's all good. Hey, uh, yeah. John Lee puts out a question for Nick. Why would God want to resurrect Jesus? Because Jesus is making claims to be the Messiah of Yahweh, the King of the Jews. Now, if the Jews crucify him and he stays dead and buried then, yeah, he's not Yahweh's man. But if God resurrects Jesus, this is God's vindication of Jesus, saying Jesus was right in what he said, and he should be taken more seriously. All right. Uh, Jim, you want to respond to, at all to that one? No, no, we'll just go to the next one. All right. This is from Travis uh, Worth. He says, question for both. What was the strongest point of your debate opponents so what was the strongest point of that, that you could take away from your opponent i'll let nick go first okay i like the questions about burial practices i think that's something that obvious that we need to be looking at a lot as well i think that's a riveting debate i know greg manette my friend is doing his dissertation on the barrier of jesus and i definitely look forward to reading that when he gets it done all right, uh, Jim. Um, I think that the the strongest arguments that he made were about um, Joseph Smith um, being in charge of circumstances and being a very good con man. I, I think that's uh, that's something that was a very good point that he made. That that there is we shouldn't believe claims like like the Book of Mormon and the Golden Plates because that they could definitely be these visionary accounts. Um, and uh, I also liked his. Um, 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 his argument for uh, oh, for the uh, the Titanic and the the Titan. I think that was a really great uh, analogy that he made. All right, we got another question here. I'm going to let David Paulman read it because he's been kind of quiet today, which has been good. <laughs> wow, <laughs> careful, careful. All right, so this one's for you, Nick. What is the evidence for the ascension? Is the ascension just as important as the resurrection? Uh, without it, we would wonder why we don't hear accounts of Jesus's life after he rose again. The ascension is found mainly in the book of Acts. And there are some ref some possible references to it elsewhere. It's been a while since I've read Donald Guthrie's Theology. It's, it's in Luke as well. It goes in that. Yeah, Luke has it too, but not as detailed as an X and Luke X are from the same person after all. Yeah. And, uh, as, and as for resurrection, well, I think you could hypothetically say there could be a scenario where Jesus raises from the dead and sticks around on earth the whole time, possibly, and we'd still be forgiven and all that stuff. But it is something important because for my view on end times and eschatology, it means Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. With my eschatology, I don't wait for a time in the future when Jesus will be king over the earth. Jesus is already king over the earth. May, may I respond to that quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
so it, it's mentioned in some other places. It's mentioned in, in Luke and it talks and uh, it says that Jesus um, led, uh, led his disciples out to Bethany um, and then sold them to stay in Jerusalem until the, the, uh, until uh, the, the coming of the spirit. So the, the, when they get the Holy ghost at Pentecost, so 40, 50 days later, and in Matthew, um, there is, uh, there's no ascension. Um, but in, uh, uh, John, there's another, um, uh, oh, what was it in? Oh, shoot. Um, oh, there's uh, in, in Mark in the, the long ending of Mark, but, um, mm -hmm. the long ending of Mark, he, uh, where did he ascend from? From from Galilee, I think. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not completely sure. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't usually when I'm doing my Bible, I don't usually go with a long yeah. name. It's, like it, many of us, I don't think it, it had that. It's been a long time since I've done uh, New Testament yeah. studies. Like, well, formally, uh, I still do it for kicks. But all right, so this random guy from faith because of reason asks Nick a question: Why do you affirm the virgin birth? Okay, the reason that I affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm, is largely because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and I believe that's entirely consistent with him having a great entry into the world, a unique entry. I really don't see any reason to think the accounts are made up. It would have been something that I think they wouldn't have even wanted to bring up if they could have somehow avoided it because you don't want Jesus being seen as illegitimate. Anyway, even though he's kind of presented that way in the Gospel of John, and they say we are not children of illegitimacy to them. <clears throat> I am reading a book by a feminist scholar right now arguing for this, and I do plan in response. I have plans for a future ebook on the virgin birth, which I do affirm if anyone's interested. Right on, right on. Uh, so that, that was kind of a question for Nick. I'm just going to move on to the next because we have only two more questions left for Nick and then I'm going to close us out. But uh, real quick, Nick, uh, David, go ahead. Why would the women wait three days to perform their spice ritual? Surely a body would have been far into decomposition by then. Okay. <laughs> I I'm glad you read that because I'm looking at this on my phone screen. I thought it said space ritual for a while. I was like, what the heck is a space ritual? But okay, it, it wouldn't have been three days. In this was a Jewish idiom at the time. When you say three days and three nights, it would include any part of a day being there. So you would go from Friday evening to Sunday morning. And no, the body would not have been too far into decomposition at the time. I live here in the Knoxville area. We have a place here called The Body Farm. I've never been there. I have no wish to be Pretty there. Cool. But yeah, yeah, they, you know about it? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 uh, the, they use, uh, use it to test the effects of decomposing bodies on the environment, yeah. and they use pigs and other stuff. Yeah. yeah, so you can go down and test bars. Three days would not have been too long into decomposition. Obviously, they couldn't go on the Sabbath because he didn't do it on Sabbath, so they went the very next day that was available for them to go. Yeah, I, I I agree. If they if they they were to go, it would have had to have been that same that same night, 
um, or it would have had to have been uh, on on Sunday morning after the uh, the the Jewish uh, uh, Sabbath would have ended uh, on uh, the rising of the sun uh, Sunday. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question for Nick. Do we know about the prior reputation of Peter or Paul to discard that they were common as Joseph Smith was? Con men. Con men. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what we know about Peter basically is he was a fisherman. I don't know about fishermen. fishermen. <laughs> I don't know don't about fishermen fishing being involved in pawn schemes, and I don't know why Peter would make up such a claim as this that would not get him any points whatsoever with the people of his day and left him open to persecution. Paul goes out right and says, hey, I was a persecutor of a church in the way he talks about himself for its in glowing terms. It, it, this is especially so in Philippians 3 where he says, but all this stuff I had before Jesus, I count as one of my favorite words in the New Testament, scubalon. Rubbish is how it's translated. I've heard it could actually be translated as a word I'm not going to say on the air here because I don't speak that way. <laughs> but that's how extreme it was. And if, if this is the case, we could say Paul wasn't gaining anything evil. Now, Joseph Smith, he was definitely gaining a lot of things. He had a lot of power. He was getting plenty of sex. He had money. And if you want to see any better, read a book, I think, that offers Richard Bushman, Rough Stone Rolling, a biography of Joseph Smith. It's about 800 pages. Good luck reading for you. So uh, just real quick. Uh, so I was a, a Pentecostal pastor for my, my last uh, two years as a mm-hmm. uh, as, as a Christian. Uh, I'd, I'd done uh, uh, sermons here and there, just um, uh, traveling mm-hmm. to other churches and stuff like that before that. Yeah. But uh, I was that was my first uh, time actually being a pastor of, of the church. But uh, in my times before is traveling and, and in my time as a pastor, I had met many different pastors. I'd, uh, I'm uh, familiar with all of the, the big name pastors. Um, uh, in fact, uh, um, my, one of my favorite people in the entire world is Francis Chan. Um, mm. uh, and every single one that I can think of just right now off the top of my head, I can't, every single one used to be a sinner. They talk about how they're about their, their drug use, about their, their, mm. their mental issues, about their prison time, about their being an atheist and things like that. So I, I think it's a, it's a, it's very, uh, very reaffirming and, and very, very convincing for people who have either once lived a, 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 a non-Christian lifestyle or uh, are currently living a non-Christian lifestyle. Like that, that, that gives them the, the idea of looking at them kind of saying, wow, like I can be that if, if I just change too, if, if, if I just accept Jesus in my heart, I can be like him. I can overcome my stuff too. I, I think it's very powerful. Yeah, but the the thing I make with contrast, though, is if you read Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, it's hardly where I was a sinner living in in sin constantly and sleeping with every woman that came my way. No, Paul's life in Philippians 3 looks pretty darn good, especially to a Jewish audience. I mean, he says, yeah, this is it's all great stuff. Rubbish apart from Jesus. Absolute rubbish. Right. So but so he was a uh, a a Pharisee. Um, mm-hmm. as a Pharisee, he probably believed in a, uh, a, a bodily resurrection. Um, mm-hmm. 
I well, believe I that what. the the church in Corinth very likely was a, a, a had the early understanding of a, a spiritual resurrection. Um, I know that like um, uh, like you have like some of the the other Gnostic um, sects of early Christianity that believed in a spiritual resurrection, and I, I think that's probably what uh, what 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 he would what was referring to. Yeah, you know uh, what, guys? I think life sucked back then myself because they didn't have air conditioning but <laughs> yeah i do got <laughs> yeah I do got that, one that's, more, that's no lie or or right? wi-fi or wi-fi mm -hmm. uh jim I, I like this is one more question here's for you yeah uh considering the disciples went from nobodies to religious leaders how likely uh it is that it was a conspiracy well it, it, if you start a business and you wind up as a ceo is that a conspiracy Yeah, I, I think that that answers it. Nick, do you, you have anything to add on that one? No, I don't. I mean, I, I like that. <laughs> I don't think Jim is saying that these people are, were going out and setting a known ruse to try and trick the world. I think that's very likely the case of Joseph Smith, but I don't think that's the case of the disciples. Yeah, I, I, I think that there, that there was a, a core group who, who really believed this. Now, whether they they believed it because they were convinced by somebody else or whether they believed this because it was them themselves who experienced it, whatever it was, they, they had a true belief. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. I do want to give you one last chance to uh, plug your shows and, and your channels. So mm -hmm. uh, I'll start with Jim this time since I gave Nick uh, the floor last time. So. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody who showed up uh, this live and is uh, chatting in the live chat. I'm sorry I couldn't keep up with that. Uh, we were having a pretty good conversation. Uh, Want to thank Nick so much um, for uh, for for debating me, and I wanted to thank uh, uh, proselytize or apostatize. Yeah, um, for 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 hosting this, um, and. Uh, my so my youtube is youtube.com slash gym majors you can follow me on twitter as well at the gym majors um i'm on facebook gym majors although i'm not on facebook <laughs> uh, but uh, other than that yeah thanks again guys yeah th thanks so much man nick well i'd like to thank jim for this debate as well i'd like to thank david russell for his porn hosting and david Palman, the open theistic calvinistic presuppositionist who doesn't affirm perversion birth, which i do affirm as where and you can find me at deeperwatersapologetics.com and i hope to see you there and i also add in like i said beginning please remember as aware that this is autism awareness month and i hope we can all definitely agree be aware of the autistic people in your lives amen there, yeah yeah absolutely again guys uh this is proselytize or apostatize david you got any uh, last words here no, just uh, show up for my debate uh, in a couple of weeks here with a presuppositionalist so I can prove Nick wrong once and for Get all him. that I, that I, that I <laughs> don't like presuppositional apologetics. He's a uh, very so good, good man. Good man. <laughs> Next week, guys, we also have a conversation on divine hiddenness. Don't miss that. That would be fun. Uh, but other than that, everybody have a great Easter. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Again, this mm -hmm. is Russell Allman. We are out.